Welcome to Tech Empire. I'm your host, Michael Quet. Today we have on the show Ifoma Ajumwa. She's a professor of employment and labor law at Cornell's Industrial and Labor Relations School and a faculty associate at the Berkman Klein Center of Harvard University. She is a 2018 recipient of the Derrick Bell Award from the Association of American Law Schools, and she is the author of a forthcoming book, The Quantified Worker, with Cambridge University Press. She's published several law review articles examining emerging technologies in the workplace. Ifoma, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. All right. So today we're going to uh, – I'm, I'm very excited to have Ifoma on. She's done incredible work in looking at the role of technology in the workplace, and I think her work touches upon a lot of things that are dear to people. Everybody has a job. Everybody, if they don't have a job, knows somebody that has a job. People have kids. They're, they're concerned about you know, what's going to be happening in the workplace as, as time moves forward with technology. And I can't think of anybody better to speak about these issues. So today we'll be discussing things like job screening technology, wearables like Fitbit bracelets for workers, employers spying on worker smartphones, and some other things as well. We'll be covering Ifoma's latest work leading into her forthcoming book, The Quantified Worker. Um, So Ifoma, yesterday you were here at Yale. You gave a speech about algorithms in uh, use for hiring practices. Um, And, you know, how did you get into this line of work? Uh, yeah, so it was it was a little bit of a circuitous journey. It really all started while I was a graduate student at Columbia University, and my dissertation was um, examining reentry for the formerly incarcerated. And once I started interviewing formerly incarcerated men and women, there was sort of a common refrain, um, which was, I hate computers. And, um, you know, I feel that I'm discriminated against when I go to apply for jobs and that I don't stand a chance at all because my resume is essentially discarded by these hiring systems. And and for me, this was a little bit paradoxical because, you know, we think of automation as an anti-bias intervention. We're removing human bias and just letting computers pick the best person, so to speak, you know, objectively from the resume. But here were humans, you know, telling me um, that actually the opposite was true, that in fact uh, hiring systems were enabling or um, helping to facilitate discrimination on a large scale. Um, because for them, they felt that if they actually could meet with a human manager, they might actually be able to plead their case. They could get that human manager to make an exception or or to see um, the merits of their rehabilitation. But in the case of a machine, you don't have that sort of um, second chance. You don't have that opportunity or wiggle room to really um, offer a reason for why you could be an exception. Um, so that was with inmates who were what look formerly incarcerated formerly incarcerated and they're looking to get jobs and their consideration here is or their concern is hey i've been incarcerated and i want to get a shot in the world to be able to move on and and have a good life and and work and they're worried that the the computer systems are basically going to screen them out Is, is that right exactly Exactly. And that and that just got me thinking, well, who else is being screened out also by these hiring systems? Um, you know, what are the technological capabilities of these hiring systems that can actually facilitate discrimination while actually obscuring them? Because we sort of have this belief um, in the objectivity of the systems, right? We have this belief in their fairness. Um, and such beliefs can actually blind us to how they could actually still be discriminatory. Okay, so so in that sense, um, it's coming across as it's discriminatory. It's coming across as objective. It's numbers, right? Uh, uh, something is being fed into a system. It's looking at various factors about this person, or if you want to call it variables. What are so if we're looking at um, screening? Uh, for prospective employees, 
What are the, other, are the kinds of things that systems tend to look for? I mean, I can think of things like name. I can think of things like your gender or, or sex, your things like some of your past employment history, et cetera. Like how wide a range of, of things are they looking at and how are these systems working? So one example I can give um, is the use of um, gaps in the resume as a you know as one criterion, right, to screen out resumes. And obviously, this on its face uh, seems very neutral. It's it's facially neutral, and and it seems uh, reasonable, right? Employers have a vested interest in hiring people who have a strong job history, people who have. Uh, evinced a strong work ethic by the lack of gaps in, in employment. The problem with that, however, is that that does and will screen out people with, um, you know, a history of incarceration when they could not work. And also, it could also screen out people who have been uh, primary caretakers, um, either of small children or of elder, elderly relatives. And unfortunately, those uh, second category of people are disproportionately women. Okay, so um, so you have gaps in the resume. Uh, yesterday, you were giving an example of um, Jared, who plays lacrosse. Um, right. So, and and can you bring us a little bit through that? Uh, how that works? Right. So, um, another issue with hiring systems is that they kind of presented as a false binary, where they are uh, presented as like fully automated decision making. So they kind of pitted against, you know, automated decision-making versus human decision-making. And I'm arguing that's actually a false binary. We don't have true AI. We don't have true artificial intelligence. So that means that all hiring systems are still being programmed by humans um, and the outputs are still also being interpreted by humans. So, you know, I'll, I'll share the same story I shared yesterday during my talk um, which I, which is a story I call the story of Jared's. Um, and it's really a story uh, by an employment law attorney who had been um, hired by a corporation to, to vet uh, a hiring system that the corporation was um, thinking of adopting um, firm-wide. Uh, and this corporation had the good sense to hire a, an attorney to actually vet what the hiring system would do. And the attorney knew to ask the right questions, which was, well, what are the two uh, biggest factors that uh, this hiring system is using to predict job performance? What, what, you know, from its output, what is this hiring system thinking or assuming would best predict job performance? Well, the answer was that the candidate's name was Jared. And that the candidate had also played high high school lacrosse. Obviously, this sounds ridiculous to us. Why? How are those two things connected to job performance? Um, but if you recall, there's actually a similar story uh, having to do with Amazon. Uh, recently, Amazon was discovered to have have scraped uh, an, uh, a hiring system that it had created internally um, to use to find candidates. Unfortunately. Once that hiring system was put in place, Amazon, which you know, audited it internally and actually discovered that that hiring system was biased towards women. So it favored men versus women. And in both cases, in both the story of the Jareds and Amazon, it's very likely um, one way that this resulted, which is that the company had fed its top 10 resumes, meaning its top 10 uh, employees into the system as sort of a sample, as a training data for the algorithm. The problem with doing that, of course, is if you have um, a corporation that's less diverse, a corporation where Jareds predominate and where people who played high school lacrosse predominate, then all all the algorithm is going to give you is people who look exactly the same. And the algorithm is going to assume that because you hired all these people that share certain attributes, somehow those attributes are associated or predictive of job performance, not necessarily recognizing that it could just be merely human bias. So I guess the point of this is that we we can't think of hiring systems as infallible. 
In fact, what they do is a lot of times replicate human bias. Um, and more than replicate it, they can actually amplify it. Because if you think about, um, you know, hiring in a corporation, you could have several people involved in hiring, right? And several people means some could be biased, some could not be biased. And the bias of one human manager might impact, I don't know, maybe dozens of resumes. But the bias encoded in one hiring system that's deployed firm-wide could actually impact thousands of resumes. So I, I think that's very uh, insidious, um, you know, the way that actually hiring systems, which may be adopted as an anti-bias uh, intervention, can serve to do the opposite, which is amplify bias. So now you said uh, that the outcomes here with Amazon and with this other firm with the with the Jared um, is likely that they've they fed in the top ten resumes or something like that. Um, so likely to me suggests that there's actually not a known reason for it. Right. And then the question becomes. Are they not disclosing how it works or is it that the system works in a way that people don't understand and therefore nobody knows? So it's actually a little bit of both. So you have to understand that currently there's no audit requirement for hiring systems. So in the story of the Jareds, really that ridiculous, ludicrous scenario was discovered because this corporation had the good sense to audit the algorithm or the hiring system before it deployed it. Um, but there was really no legal, legal mandate for them to do so. There's no audit requirement. Um, so they don't have to disclose how it works or they don't really have to figure out how it works. Uh, on the other hand, also, a lot of hiring systems uh, make use of machine learning algorithms. So algorithms are basically you know, a step-by-step -step process for solving any known problem. So for machine uh, learning algorithms or really just for computerized algorithms, what you have is uh, a defined set of inputs um, and you're hoping to get a defined set of outputs, which is hire, don't hire, or maybe in between. So red light, green light, and maybe some yellows, which are like borderline. When you have machine learning algorithms, um, it kind of makes it murkier because you have a dis defined set of inputs, but the algorithm itself is learning. So the algorithm itself is actually creating new algorithms, um, which you're not defining. The algorithm itself is learning from how you react to the choices it gives you um, and then sort of creating new algorithms from that. Um, so it can become murky in terms of di uh, discerning exactly what attributes the algorithm is giving precedence to or defining as important because it's constantly changing, right? Uh, uh, the machine learning algorithm is creating new algorithms de novo um, as it goes on. So uh, these companies – now, there's a lot more going on here than just screening job applications. And I want to get to that in, in, in a minute or two. But um, when we're looking at the use of these platforms, if you want to call them, to screen employees and decide who to hire, um, the question to me becomes, first of all, you know, are they looking at things then like age? Um, are, can they look at things like race and, and, and those kinds of categories? Do they have proxy categories? So if somebody's from a certain zip code, it, they may not account for your race, right? But that basically, you know, if most people of a certain race live there, then that is basically then telling what your race is. Um, so there's there's those kinds of questions, and you know, obviously we have some protections in place. Um, to guard against that. But also, how widespread are these systems? I think a lot of people have had the experience of applying to a Walmart or a Target and they get these big um, 
you know, questionnaires where they're just sitting there like these, some of these questions are ridiculous. Like what would you do? Do you agree or strongly agree that if you see somebody who's a customer do this and it's murky as to what you should do in the first place, you know, what would you do? And you know that they're trying to size you up and, um, you know, but that's Walmart, that's Target. Then we can think of all sorts of different businesses out there, enterprise businesses, white collar businesses, um, um grocery stores, anybody. So how widespread are these systems? And um, and then to the first question too, uh, what are, are what is the, the, the lines in the sand of, of, about what they're allowed to codify in there um, given that there, there are laws in place to, to protect uh, certain classes of people and certain forms of discrimination? That's a really great question. Um, so in a previous article um, that I wrote with my co-author Dan Green, we actually went through and uh, conducted a survey of the top twenty, uh, top twenty uh, Fortune five hundred companies, and what we found that they mostly have all adopted online hiring systems. So essentially, automated hiring systems. So we're talking about Target, we're talking about Walmart, we're talking about Starbucks. Um, we're talking about really all the major employers, uh, particularly in the retail space. Um, and why you might say, well, that seems to implicate really just blue collar workers or, or low wage workers or hourly force, uh, hourly workforce. Um, the fact is, why shoe firms like, uh, Goldman Sachs are also moving to automated hiring. Uh, so Goldman Sachs is now using personality tests as part of its hiring. It's using video interviews, um, which are automated. Um, so, so it's really widespread. So the use of uh, 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 hiring algorithms or hiring systems are really proliferating in the workspace. And I and we think it's going to continue to do so because of the labor-saving effects, right? The cost-saving effects for companies. To sift through large numbers of candidates. Right. So if you think about the number of resumes that a single corporation receives, they would need to hire maybe five, ten people um, to sift through those uh, resumes in in a week or two weeks, whereas uh, a computerized program can do it in a matter of hours um, and, you know, it costs much less. So that that seems to be the trend for the future that you know most companies will move to automated hiring systems now as to what laws are in place to protect uh job candidates uh from the use of protected characteristics like race gender there are definitely laws so the title 7 of the civil rights acts uh, act uh prohibits the use of protected categories like race gender in the hiring process but the issue is that companies or corporations may still be able to use proxies, like you mentioned earlier, which might seem neutral, but actually are quite highly correlated with race. So, for example, the use of zip codes. So one company actually, once it had audited its system, found that the use of zip codes, which actually it had adopted for a very innocent reason, which is... We want people who live close to where we work so we wouldn't have to worry about people commuting. Um, so that's a good business reason to adopt that. But the company, when it audited its system, found, well, wait, that actually means that we're essentially excluding minorities from our hiring pool. So that company then changed that policy. So the, the company actually removed the use of zip codes. Similarly, other companies have been caught using things like graduation date, so your college graduation date. That also could be a proxy for age, actually, and age discrimination is against the law um, for people over 40. So so the, 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 a lot of the issue is that these um, hiring systems actually can very much facilitate discrimination by allowing all these other proxies that are not on its face related to protected categories, but are actually highly correlated. So somebody might come back at you and say, well, but look, humans do this too, right? I mean, if you're older and 
uh, you're applying for a job and I see you in person, I might not say anything, but you know, I might just make that decision anyways, right? Right. That I don't want I want somebody younger. Right, of course, human bias is a well-documented fact. So I guess my argument isn't to say that hiring systems are worse than human bias or or, uh, or, or uh, I'm sorry, result in worse bias than human interviewers. My argument is really just to say that we shouldn't just uncritically embrace hiring systems. You know, much like we have laws and rules to protect us from human bias in the workplace and, and in hiring, we also need to develop legal frameworks to protect us from human bias when it comes to uh, automated hiring. So that we know what's going on and the the veneer of objectivity needs to go. People right. need to understand right. that this is not something that is simply a matter of machines and numbers. And now the human – like you said yesterday, the human hand is actually omnipresent. Right. 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 In programming the systems, in feeding the data in, et, et cetera. So – and then last question on, on this before we move on to other questions about the workplace. Um, what kind of data are they allowed to pull in? Um, can they pull in social media data? Can they pull in data from from data brokers who are out there profiling people? Are there limitations on you know? Can they know people's health habits and in, encode that into those things based on maybe what they purchased in stores? Um, people who consume alcohol, who consume cigarettes, things like that. What are they allowed to 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 pull in? So quite a bit. Um, I think actually most of what you've just said because. The problem is there's no federal laws as to what can be pulled in. So, for example, social media use um, in most states. So some states have now passed laws against this. Um, your prospective employer can look at your social media and make determinations as to your cultural fitness for the job or your fit for the job just based on your social media use. And that would um, be your your publicly available stuff because if they're not – Face, say Facebook friends with you or Instagram friends right. with you and you make something private, then they can't see that. But if it is public, then they can, it's fair game unless there's a law passing that they can't. So if it's public, it's certainly uh, fair game in most states. Some states still say that's not OK. Um, but also some employers have actually taken the extra step of um, asking uh, applicants to unlock their social media profiles uh, for review. And, and as a result, some states have also passed laws saying employers can't ask for that. So you better go back home and delete <laughs> most of your history. Right. You better double check your history. Yeah. Um, and then and then they can pull in. So and they can pull in from other potentially from other data brokers and things like that. This speaks to me of there being a kind of industry behind this, right? Right. So that there's all these companies that nobody's ever heard of um, and only those who are deep in the industry knows them and they have the reputations there. Um, it's like a shadow industry, right? Right. So Frank Pasquale's book. So Frank Pasquale is a professor at University of Maryland. Um, he's a law professor. And his book, The Black Box Society, really delves into this. Um, his book really shines a light on the shadowy world of data brokers um, who are collecting information um, the detritus, really, of our electronic lives, our digital lives, where we shop, um, the locations we most visit, um, even the health problems we're searching on Google. Um, these data brokers are collecting all these types of information and using them to really create profiles on us, um, which they could then sell to any interested party, including prospective employers. Now, are they accessible, um, you know, if um, people want to reach out to them and say, hey, you know, how do you do what you do? How does it work? And, the data brokers? Yeah. Um, I don't know. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> Good luck. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So there are other things that are going on um, in the workplace. There's wearables. There's uh, workplace wellness programs. So we'll get to the wearables maybe in a second. Um, what is a workplace wellness program? What comes to my mind is you're going to be asked to go and exercise and do certain health things. 
um, what is this and how does this relate to workers, you know, ability to control their own lives versus being actually kind of demanded that they behave a certain way with their own health? Yeah. So my co-author, Kate Crawford, and I wrote about that. And um, essentially, we see wellness programs as the intersection of health and big data. So ever since the big data revolution, um, wellness programs have really proliferated. Um, It doesn't mean that they're actually new. So wellness programs have actually been around for quite some time. The difference um, is the amount of data that they now pull in, the amount of health data that is digitized as a result of wellness programs. So a lot of wellness programs uh, are ex- do exactly what you say. So they encourage uh, workers to lose weight. Um, they encourage workers to stop smoking cigarettes if, if that's uh, an addiction that they have. Um, they encourage workers to exercise more, um, eat better, um, and they track all such behaviors. Um, and that tracking, you know, results in lots of data. So sometimes as part of wellness programs, workers can be given uh, Fitbits or um, other tracking devices. Um, and a big issue, and, and you know, while of, of course we recognize that employers have a vested interest, of course, in having healthy workers because of the nature of health insurance in the U.S. It's really the employer that's the biggest guarantor of health insurance. We don't have universal health care. We don't have a single-payer system. It's really the employee that's bearing the brunt of health care costs. So, of course, they do have a vested interest in reducing health care costs by encouraging workers to lose weight, um, exercise better, eat better. But on the other hand, the issue, however, is all the data that's being collected on the worker and if there's a chance that such data can actually be used against the worker. Um, so there's a question of could this, you know, could the data be used for employment discriminatory purposes or even could the data end up um, with third parties that the worker never authorized or never even uh, conceived of? Um, and, you know, I, as I write in a Harvard, Harvard Business Review article, this is in fact the case. Um, many wellness program vendors, so a lot of corporations will hire third parties to run their wellness programs, and those are called wellness program vendors. They will actually sell the data that they're obtaining from workers. And most workers don't know this. Most workers have no idea that this is happening. Um, and frankly, there's no law saying that they can't sell this data because the question is, is it really covered by HIPAA? Um, and, HIPAA and being? HIPAA being the Health Information Portability and Accountability Act, um, which is a health law that's not a privacy law, as people might presume, because people tend to think the P in HIPAA stands for privacy. It does not. It stands for portability. And the the primary purpose of HIPAA is actually just to allow you, the patient, to port your uh, medical information from one doctor's office to another, right? It's just really allowing you that ease of access to your medical record and also allowing you kind of continuity of care. Um, so the primary purpose of HIPAA is not actually privacy, although that's sort of an element of it because obviously you have to authorize any doctor's office to send your records to another, et cetera. But the issue is that HIPAA covers doctor's offices uh, and, also, you know, similarly, similar healthcare provider entities. So the question is, are wellness programs healthcare providers? It's kind of a gray area. Um, many people would say, no, they're not providing you medical advice per se, so that means that the information they have may then not be covered by HIPAA, which means that they can port or sell that information without your permission or even your knowledge. Yeah, and HIPAA also, um, a colleague of mine, Mason Marks, uh, wrote about this, right? Emergent medical data um, is, is, is what he called it. And uh, you can get certain – you can infer certain things about people even sometimes based on their speech habits like if they swear and, and, and whatnot um, and uh, on social media say and that HIPAA does not cover that kind of thing. Right. Right. Um, so again, I guess a theme there is 
upgrading your privacy laws and your to meet the the new technologies that that are being unleashed into society. Um, so, in terms of a wellness program, are there like coercive things that are in place that they seem nice and, and they seem uh, beneficial to the worker, but actually, it's actually when you think about it. It's something that – it's a reward and punishment thing. You're being rewarded if you behave as your employer is instructing you to behave with your own personal health and, and, and life outside of your workplace. And uh, if, you, if you, you comply, you get the carrot. If you don't comply by not getting the carrot, essentially you're getting the stick. So, so the, the, the EEOC you know, have, have clarified that on the wellness programs, you're not allowed to use penalties. Uh, but you can use incentives. So, you know, per the Affordable Care Act, you are allowed up to to use an incentive of 30% of the premium of a healthcare premium uh, for um, uh, for weight loss, and then up to 50% for smoking cessation. So that's essentially saying that as a worker, if I enroll in a weight loss program, I could get 30% of my premium reduced by the employer. That you're usually paying out of pocket. Exactly. Um, Or if I enroll in a smoking cessation program, I can get up to 50% reduced. Um, Of course, this sounds great, but you also have to realize that this is sort of an issue of semantics um, because an incentive can also be a penalty, right? Because if I don't enroll in a weight loss program, then I'm not having 30% of my premium reduced. I'm paying 30% more, um, et cetera. So it's, it's a matter of semantics in that case. But, but you're right, you know, in that, you know, for workers who have privacy concerns um, and choose not to enroll in wellness programs, they could be losing money, right, that they could have saved on their premium. And this might not be an issue for – um, you know, white collar workers who are making um, a good amount of money, but it could be more of an issue for blue collar workers who are not making a good amount of money and who are close to the to the poverty line. Um, this could be seen as kind of an economic coercion um, to join a wellness program. Now, you've written about the use of of mobile phones to track employees and. I don't want to get the story wrong here, but my, what I have here is that a, a woman was fired after deleting an employee tracking app that tracked her movements at all times, even when she was no longer at work and had turned off the app. Right. So the the I think the idea here is that the the employer is saying, "Hey, put this app in your in your phone, your personal phone." Is it? Right. So this was a story from from California, actually, and, and that's significant. So the fact that this happened in California is significant. So this was referring to the Zora app. So it's a productivity application that you can install in a desktop or, or um, mobile phone. And part of how it tracks productivity is tracking location. Um, because this woman was uh, a mid-level exec, and part of her job was to travel to different um, work locations. Um, the productivity app was, you know, designed to track her location to essentially ensure that she was where she was supposed to be, which ostensibly makes sense. I mean, obviously, yeah, you you have a vested interest in uh, ensuring that this woman is being productive and attending to the lo- the different locations of the corporation. Um, the issue, however, was that this particular employer uh, or this particular employee discovered that she was being tracked even in her off-work hours. And how she discovered this was that one of her supervisors, who I guess had a, a more prurient interest in her activities, um, had disclosed to her that he was tracking her over the weekend and had even known how fast she was driving and everywhere she had been. So she felt this was harassment and and therefore asked to delete the phone from her, uh, delete the app from her phone. And she was told that if she would do that, if she did that, she would be fired because having the app was essentially a condition 
of her employment. She went ahead and deleted the app anyway just because she didn't like the feeling of being surveilled. She kind of likened it to having – basically she likened it to having an ankle bracelet, you know, like someone who's on house arrest. So after she deleted the app, she was fired from her job and she brought suit and she won. But that's because in California, um, there are stronger uh, employee privacy protection rules than in other parts of the country. Um, Contrast this to a case that happened in the state of Massachusetts where an employer um, fired an employee after seeing a, a carton of cigarettes in that employee's car. And that's because in the state of Massachusetts, um, it is legal to discharge an employee for being a smoker. So that's not a protected status. So in this, what direction does this tend to go? Because one thing that comes to mind here is that those who who are high up in the hierarchy of these organizations probably do these things themselves, right? And, um, you know, uh, I know from you know people uh, who I've met in in my life travels uh, uh, stories of the high level executives who they can leave the office when they want, they can do what they want, they can smoke, nobody's going to fire them. Is this something that uh, I'm assuming? Then this is something that is coming from the top, being imposed on those who have the lower status within these organizations. Right. That certainly seems to be the case that it's, you know, the low, um, low wage workers, the blue collar workers that are the most surveilled. Um, so, and, and that actually gets into the discussion of wearable tech in the workplace. Um, but I think it's, it's too easy to, to dismiss this as really just a problem that applies to low wage workers or blue collar workers. Because you actually see that also infiltrating the white-collar world in terms of like keyboard tracking, right, Uh, keystroke tracking, um, email tracking. Um, These are now features of the white-collar world. So a lot of employers will track employee emails um, to, for example, detect keywords um, either indicating like dissatisfaction or um, indicating like corporate espionage. Um, a lot of corporations will track keystrokes um, that uh, uh, an employee is using and, and could use that to retrieve, you know, personal information shared on the computer. So corporate surveillance actually now touches all fields, all levels of the workplace. So that uh, keystrokes there is what you're typing as as you're typing right, it on, right. uh, on a computer that would be used at the workplace. Right. Um would this go up sometimes all the way up to the CEO or the CIO? I don't know. I mean, I haven't necessarily heard of incidences of, of this being at the top. But we did have the Hewlett-Packard case. I don't, I don't know if you remember that. Um, uh, so this, this was a case in which um, essentially there had been a leak from a board meeting. So this actually involved the board of directors, so actually higher than the CEO. And there had been a leak at the board meeting. Um, and the chairman was intent on discovering this leak. So in perhaps the most extreme case of corporate surveillance, the chairman hired private detectives to follow around board members, um, also track their phones, and, and even um, use protects, uh, pretextual um, uh, methods to try to obtain their phone records <laughs> from, from, you know, from phone carriers to see who they had been calling um, and, and of, of course, check their emails to see who they had been emailing. So I guess my point is the technological capabilities are now there for anyone to be tracked. So it's it, it can be – it would be too head in the sand to assume that anyone is safe. So then the – if we're looking at things like emails, um, we're looking at things like phone calls. Uh, is this primarily when a company gives you a work phone or are they able to monitor your personal phone and what require you install so- company software on, on that? I mean, how does that work? So primarily this works on company phones and company computers. But you actually have to remember in the Zara case, this was installed on her personal phone. 
Because here's the thing. Um, in the U.S., employment is at will, right? So that means that the employer and employee can really bargain the terms of that employment. And perhaps an employer could say a term of your employment is we need to check your location at all times. And that would include, you know, even in your off time work. And, um, and an employee could acquiesce or consent to this. But of course, the issue is, is that really true consent, right? Um, and in some countries, you know, in, especially in European jurisdictions, there's just a blanket ban against that ever being up for bargaining, right? Against privacy being something that could be bargained for um, in the employment sphere. Um, in the U.S., we're sort of a little more lax about that um, because we sort of allow this for this freedom of contract when it comes to work. Um, the Lochner case was perhaps the the most egregious example of the, of that, although, of course, that case was eventually overruled. Um, but, yeah, you know, the, the question is that we don't have um, – essentially blanket federal laws that dictate any kind of boundaries um, or limits to to worker surveillance. And that's that's the name of the article my article with Kate Crawford and um and um and Jason Schultz is limitless worker surveillance. And that's really making the point that in the US worker surveillance can actually be truly limitless because it really comes down to what you've you've been able to bargain for. Like your your privacy as a worker comes down to what you've been able to bargain for as opposed to what you've been granted by law. So let's get over to um, the question of of how that power relationship works, who's who's impacted by this, how you see um, laws and, 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 you know, regulating some of this. But um, before we get there, I just want to ask you a couple more questions about what's going on here. You've brought up uh, things like uh, exoskeletons and smart helmets. Can you talk about those and what are you seeing as some of the most um, you know, eye-catching uh, things that are going on now that all this new tech is coming out? So, so your reference to exoskeletons and smart helmets is really a reference to the use of wearable technologies in the w- workplace. And I think this past decade has seen really a proliferation of those types of technologies in the workplace, particularly um, when it comes to manufacturing jobs, um, factory work. Um, I think perhaps the most striking example is um, the Amazon example. So Amazon recently was revealed to have received a patent um, for uh, what it's calling a wristband Um and it's 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 a wristband that has haptic feedback, meaning really that it buzzes or gives a little bit of a of a vibration um, to the wearer. And ostensibly, the use of this wristband is to direct workers to finding the right the right product in the in, in a in in basically a warehouse, right? So we might all be somewhat familiar to how Amazon works. You know, you order something online um, and then there is a message sent to the warehouse where the product is located and then that product has to be retrieved from an enormous warehouse with bins and lots of other goods. And the the goal is to retrieve that item as efficiently as possible because then the, the more efficiently that item can be retrieved, the quicker it can come to you, a uh, prime customer, in the time it was supposed to arrive. Um, so the wristbands are to facilitate in this process um, in that they would help guide workers to where the correct product is located. Um, and so this wristband would track workers' um, location in the warehouse at all times. And it would also like track the location of their hands um, and it, and then it would give them a haptic feedback when they're in closer proximity to the product. But of course, there are some concerns about this type of product because it seems, I mean, it, it's essentially a human computer interface or a human machine interface. And the question is, you know, are we turning workers into robots? Are we 
um, taking away sort of creativity, flexibility in the job. Um, and then there's also the surveillance aspects. Um, with the use of this uh, wristband, you're going to know where the worker is at all times. You're going to know what they're doing with their hands. Um, and while this can seem like a, a perhaps a surveillance dream for, for a certain manager, um, this could be a dystopic nightmare for the worker who feels constantly surveilled at all times. And and I should note, you know, that several studies, um, particularly the work of Ethan Bernstein, who's at Harvard uh, Business School, have actually found that constant surveillance is detrimental to productivity um, because it has a psychological effect on workers. Um, it, it can it can create fatigue, mental fatigue. Um, it can create workers who um, feel that they can't ever make mistakes and that and therefore don't take initiative. Um, it's it's actually on the overall bad um, for the thing that it's aiming to maximize, which is productivity. Yeah, and and you know one thing that I uh, uh, see here is. This notion also that these technologies, they might be able to um, help in terms of efficiency, but who's in control in the sense that now they can see that you do X amount of tasks per minute or per hour, right? My mom worked in a claims department in a health insurance corporation, and over time, they started becoming more demanding over how much, how many claims you review you know, per day, per hour, whatever. And that also put pressure. Uh, the, there's always from the health insurance uh, company's standpoint, what do we want to do? We, wanna, we want to collect the money and then not pay out any money to people. So the people that she saw move on who were um, successful tended to take pride in turning down claims, right, which was – you know, to me, a little bit of an eye opener because it, that makes sense. Usually, people psychologically align their mentality behind what it is that they're being asked to do if they're going to be successful at it. Um, but also, you have this issue where if they're quantifying the worker in this way, they're able to now come in and put more pressure in. It, right. 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 So, do you see that as an issue? For workers as well in terms of um, – and can you relate back to – a lot of people talk about Ford. They talk about Taylor. Can you like just contextualize this for a moment uh, you know, as, as to what that history is there? Right. So a lot of people you know, ask me, is this a new phenomenon, right? This, this sort of like reliance on surveillance or development of you know, new and emerging technologies to effectuate surveillance, is this – actually a new phenomenon? And the, the answer is yes and no, right? Um, it's no because, of course, this is still an iteration really of Taylorism. So Taylorism um, was a movement at the start of the 20th century. You know, uh, Francis Winslow Taylor um, came up with this idea that essentially to maximize productivity, you need to break down the work tasks to the base level, right? And you need to understand scientifically how to best do them. So it was actually called scientific management was the uh, true name of it. And and he did this with a stopwatch and a whistle. And he would time workers doing specific tasks and, and doing it in different ways to find what was the best method to do it and the quickest method to do it. And the whole idea was to maximize productivity. Now, of course, there were reactions to Taylorism as it was more pejoratively known. Um, and there was a congressional hearing about this because a lot of the workers were striking um, because it was predominantly like factory workers. And the idea was that they felt that this was more of a speed up than anything else. And what they mean by speed up is that they felt that the standard was being raised. So instead of um, completing the work in, say, five minutes, they would choose someone who could do the work in three minutes. And then they would say, that's the new standard. So it was more of a speed up than necessarily finding the best way to do things that was still comfortable for the worker. 
And also there was a surveillance aspect to it because now you were being watched to ensure that you completed the work and the time allowed. And, of course, Ford implemented the system. Um, Henry Ford implemented the system for his factories of, of um, car makers. And, um, and he even had a department he called the sociological department where detectives would follow around workers and and actually check that they were being good citizens, as in not drinking, not gambling, to ensure that they could then be productive workers. So surveillance of workers, you know, as my co-authors and I discuss in our in our paper, limitless worker surveillance is not new. This this is certainly um, a phenomenon that has been around for quite some time. What is new, however, is the technological capabilities. So Taylor had the stopwatch. Now we have productivity apps that's in your phone, in your computer. We have we even have a system of like taking a screenshot of your computer every five minutes to see what you're doing. So now your supervisor doesn't have to stand over your shoulder and watch you. A computer program can do that quite easily, 24 hours, right? And there's this trove of data, right? There's this trove of digital data that's being accumulated and that can be ported um, and that is being used to really, truly quantify the worker, um, in terms of their work habits, um, in terms of their health risks. Um, it's, it's a total quantification of the worker. Um, you even have things like genetic discrimination, which you didn't really have in the time of Taylor because that technology wasn't around. But now you have genetic testing. And, for example, there's a new law being proposed in Congress, um, and it's, uh, uh, it's uh, H.R. 1313, and that law would allow employers uh, to demand that workers undergo genetic testing as part of wellness programs. I mean, this is just, I feel, a, a quest for the total quantification of the worker. And so I think worker surveillance and water, worker quantification is now to a manner and to a degree never before seen in history. Um, and it's very much as a result of the evolution in technology. Yeah, and I, I think obviously this um, pushes towards the question of, uh, you know, are we proper, properly grappling with uh, the technological advances that are, are coming in so rapidly? Um, the So in terms of, um, you know, before we close out here, uh, I want to get your take on awareness you know, public awareness of this? If, is it being reported well in, in the press? Is there enough public awareness? Is there enough awareness by workers? Um, so let's let's and, – and then kind of how to uh, maybe push back against this. Um, but before we get to that second part, what do you see in terms of, of you know, is it that most people are just kind of still in the dark about this kind of stuff? Right. So I think that's a really good question because – what I see is a huge amount of ignorance as to how exactly um, pervasive uh, both the surveillance and, and the quantification of workers um, is becoming are, are becoming like uh, it's just it is just um, not common knowledge. Um, of course, you know I've, I've spoken with uh, journalists from the New York Times, the you know Washington Post. Um, I've written things for The Atlantic, um, New York Times, also Washington Post. Um, I've been interviewed by reporters from Slate, you know, really delving into the issue of worker surveillance. But I think your layperson still doesn't know as much as they need to know. I think there's still very much room for more awareness in these issues. And I think that the people who do know about it – perhaps feel a sense of powerlessness to really stop it. And I think part of that is as a result of the decline in union membership in the U.S. Because unions really were a way for workers to um, negotiate um, how they could be treated in the workplace. And with the decline in union membership, um, workers really don't have power um, they really don't have bargaining power because union membership allowed for collective bargaining, right? Workers could elect leaders who would 
um, essentially bargain for their best interests. Um, but because of the declining union membership, for various reasons, some of which include union busting, um, workers don't have that bargaining power anymore. And so I think a lot of workers just feel powerless. Of course, you have to have a job to uh, feed your family, feed yourself. So you sort of acquiesce to the surveillance, um, even even if it feels wrong, even if it feels unproductive. Yeah, and when I went to apply for uh, to work at Walmart in high school, they gave us a, a, a training seminar. They showed us a video that was saying, you know, basically, don't join the unions. <laughs> right. And then they said, if you have any issues, you can go. We have monthly meetings, and you can show up to our monthly meetings, and we'll listen to you and we'll engage with you. Um, obviously, uh, some people have misgivings about unions because, I mean, you know. There are there are sometimes things that happen with unions that are political. They become bureaucracies and uh, sometimes, you know, there's legitimate gripes or critiques of of specific unions. But as a general concept, right, the idea is if employees can't withhold their labor, they basically have no bargaining power because they need to eat, because they need to try to get as, as decent a lifestyle as, as they want or as they can. Um, that that mechanism is basically fundamental uh, to the labor process and labor rights. What is your take now? Union membership, my understanding, is somewhere around ten percent in the U.S. right now. Are they engaging with the with these topics? And are there major unions that are are looking at this and starting to push back? Right. So that's a really good question, and and I feel that Cornell ILR School, you know, the the Industrial and Labor Relations School at Cornell is very much at the forefront of this because we do train union leaders. So we are involved in in making sure union leaders are very much aware of these types of issues and are thinking through it when it comes to collective bargaining. The Workers Institute at Cornell, uh, the Cornell ILS School, has also been involved in trying to help unionize um, gig economy workers in New York City, for example. So gig economy workers who can be treated unfairly, who can have their, you know, wages um, stolen. Um, That's a big issue for them. And having a union could actually really help them to ensure that they get fair treatment. So in terms of laws that are in place, things I've seen in your writings, Title VII, Americans with Disabilities Act, Age Discrimination Employment Act, Employment Non-Discrimination Act, Pregnancy Discrimination Act, Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act. Are the laws, you know, these set of laws actually equipped at this point to handle these issues? So that's a really excellent question because you have to remember that when these laws were promulgated, uh, the technological advances we see now were not conceived of. So you do have to question the, the the capability, right, of these laws to really address the issues we see now, which are as a result of these emerging technologies. So much of my law review writing has been to think through how to help the law evolve, right, how to adapt the law or how to update the law um, to ensure that it actually is able to address the new technological issues that we now have, the new socio-technical problems that are arising from these emerging technologies. So much of my writing is really to propose sometimes new legal frameworks um, to take into account these um, issues. So my current paper draft, you know, soon forthcoming, is um, the paradox of automation as anti-bias intervention. And that paper is actually part of a companion paper. It's part of a two-piece paper. It has a companion piece called The Auditing Imperative for Hiring Systems. And both those papers are really at, uh, they're really addressing automated decision-making in the context of hiring. And, and one paper is, you know, really lays out what some of the issues are, such as, you know, the belief in data objectivity, treating data as Oracle, and then also like the way that hiring technologies can encode bias. And then the second paper really delves into some legal proposals for addressing those issues, right? And that's really this auditing imperative, creating auditing systems for this, uh, 
for these uh, technologies. So I want to make sure that we shine a light on the question of who is impacted by this. We'll do that. We can do that right now. And then uh, and you also have here um, solutions, general privacy, employ- employment privacy, sector-specific privacy. So maybe let's ask that, ask that first. We could go at this right by basically having general privacy laws, employment privacy laws, or things that are specific to industries. Is it then just all three of those kinds of things? Because to me, when I think of general privacy, yeah, there's some things that basically hit on everything, right? But it is still kind of very general. What about those dynamics? So in in that article, which is a Limitless Worker Surveillance article, um, my co-authors and I really are thinking through three possible approaches. So the general privacy one, it would be akin to the GDPR, you know, the European GDPR, which is just like a general privacy law, just delineating what can be done with an individual's data at, at any time. Um, but we also think through, you know, in the U.S., we do have an employment system where you, like like we know, you have this sort of like uh, employment at will where there's bargaining power and part of it can actually implicate privacy. So we think about employment privacy specifically and we think also in that context about protecting employee data that's more sensitive than other types of data. And that is actually thinking about um, health data and how perhaps there actually needs to be stronger protections for health data. So you have HIPAA, right, which is protecting uh, somewhat protecting uh, health data in a clinical context, really, or or in a a medical context, and we're we're saying that perhaps we actually need a new law that would protect employee health data, even if it's not in a medical or clinical context. So to close out here, uh, you can make the case that you know race, class, gender, disabilities, people who are older. Um, there's a lot of different people who are hit by this at the same time. The common worker, everybody really, I mean there's so many. You could be the the most privileged demographic, right? And you're still, you know, white male and so on, able-bodied. And yet you're still potentially under this kind of surveillance, but we shouldn't lose sight of, right? Like the fact that the people who are generally speaking hit hardest are people who are marginalized, who are oppressed. And part of, to me, what seems what would happen in an ideal world is that if you're going to use this technology, that workers should have some rights to have a say in it. And if they don't want, even if it's an efficiency gain sometimes, if we're not like animals here, right? Like we have a right to walk around on this earth and enjoy our time, including in the in the workplace and have some pleasantness to the work. And yet we live in a, in a society which is authoritarian in our day-to-day lives for, for most em- employment relationships. Um, so, you know, can you speak to the, the coupling together maybe of, um, of those who are most impacted by this and the interests of the common person irrespective of that at the same time, but also um, how work works in our society. Right. So I would actually refer you to the book uh, Private Governments by Elizabeth Arden. Um, In that book, she really makes a strong case that we've basically allowed our workplaces to become private governments in that essentially employers are allowed to enact whatever rules they want in the workplace and to really circumscribe our privacy um, in whatever way they choose in the workplace. And and this is a specifically American phenomenon, of course. But I think, you know, that book, Private Governments, really ham- hammers home this point. And, and I agree. I think that we really have to come back to the notion that we're not just workers. We are workers by necessity, you know, because we do live in a capitalist system. But we're also humans and we we need human dignity. Uh, and part of human digni- dignity is some measure of privacy, even in the workplace, right? Some measure of of thinking that we our lives belong to us and that not all, not all of our lives are up for grabs and that we can maintain some sort of separation between a personal life and a work life. 
and that part and that is and that this is fundamental to human dignity. Um, so I, I I certainly agree with that sentiment that uh, with that sentiment that it's it's not just about you know thinking through how is this productive or not productive, but really thinking through um, what is this doing to society, what is this doing to human dignity. Okay, well, we'll leave it there. Ifama, thank you for coming on the show. Your book, The Quantified Worker, comes out? Um, no exact date yet, but hopefully later, either later this year, early next year, it will be coming out with uh, Cambridge University Press. Um, so please stay on the lookout for that. Um, my articles uh, also on the, the same topics are The Paradox of Automation as Anti-Bias uh, Intervention and the auditing imperative for hiring systems. Okay. And uh, I can't recommend people, if you're interested in these works, look up Ifoma, um, read her work. It's fantastic. Uh, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a delight. Okay. Thanks.